0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today we have a very special guest, Benjamin Studebaker from the Studebaker family in South Bend, Indiana. He will discuss the history of South Bend and effect of globalization on this small town in middle America. Thanks for joining us. So you study in the UK right now?
1: Yes, I'm doing a PhD at the University of Cambridge in politics.
0: Oh, cool. What did you study in undergrad?
1: In undergrad, I did politics. Uh, at Chicago, I did a master's in social science, and then I came here.
0: And what's your thesis on?
1: My thesis is on legitimacy crises in democracies, when people begin to feel that their democracy isn't working for them, but they don't have any alternative systems of government that they would prefer. They're not willing to go to a communist system or a fascist system. So instead, they are looking for ways to fixing or reforming or purifying a democracy. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of question of how do they get out of that kind of crisis, given that they're trying to fix something that they think is broken through the use of the thing that they're trying to fix?
0: Ah, I see. Is it akin to all the people we hear who want to return to a normal president, things like that?
1: Yes, you have some people who want to get back to normal, and you have other people who think that we need some other kind of fix.
0: Um, Getting back to what you're studying, are people like Pete Buttigieg examples of what happens when people lose faith in their democracy or... And the way he's trying to kind of restore normalcy?
1: Yeah. So there are three ways I've come up with that you might come out of one of these kinds of crises. So the first would be to kind of solve the crisis, to come up with something that makes the system acceptable again through changing what's going on and meeting the expectations that were previously unmet. The second is settling, which is where you get people to lower their expectations and put up with the situation without fixing it and without improving it. And the third is sinking, where this back and forth between attempts to solve and attempts to get people to settle just keeps aggravating people more and more. And eventually they become more resentful and they lose their commitment to the democratic institutions that they initially had.
0: But should they have had any commitments to the democratic institutions, given that all of our institutions have failed the people, our by being U.S.?
1: Yeah, I, I think that this is part of the fun, is that when you're in a crisis like this, each of these three options will kind of develop its own cohort that wants to go in that direction. So... In studying it from an academic perspective, I just kind of look at, in the context of the thesis, how each of these different groups is trying to bring about its resolution. And of course, it's quite likely that at least one, if not two, of these three options are impossible, not even a real choice, just appear to be a real choice because of the information people don't have. So it might be the case, and I kind of suspect this at points in my thesis, that Despite repeated efforts to solve the crisis or settle the crisis, we may not be able to do either one of those two things.
0: Why not?
1: Because at this point, I think the things that are causing the crisis are embedded in globalization. So I think that the problems that are contributing to this legitimacy crisis come out of a lot of international and global dynamics that no particular state is capable of resolving. And I also think that it's very hard to create the kind of unity of purpose at the domestic level that would be necessary to go into the international arena and try to do anything about these problems. And there are things like the global race to the bottom on taxes, regulations, wages. There's things like climate change, these big global problems that are not easy to solve from the nation state level make it difficult even if you get a government that's elected that's committing to resolving the problem. It's hard even for that government to do it, let alone the governments we've had that are divided, that don't have enough unity of purpose to do very much of anything at all, uh, large parts of which don't even recognize these problems as problems and aren't even interested in doing anything about them.
0: Yeah, for me, that is what's so shocking about the Democratic Party is At least the GOP recognizes the problem, but then they blame immigrants or whatever psychotic racist excuse they have. But the Democratic Party acts like it's all in your head. They're like, oh, rural white voter, you're racist because you're saying that it's harder to get a job now than it was when you were a child. It feels like they're putting their head in the sand.
1: Yeah, the Democratic establishment, I would say, are settlers. They're people who want everyone to lower their expectations and accept what's going on as good enough. And the Republicans present themselves as solvers, but they have no conception of the problem. They don't understand what it is or how it works. The solutions they propose in many cases make it worse instead of making it better. And so while they talk about the problem, they are not capable of solving it.
0: Oh, absolutely not. I think they know what the problem is they don't operate in good faith.
1: Yeah, because many of the people that the Republican Party exists to serve are beneficiaries of these very same problems. Exactly.
0: So your name is Benjamin Studebaker. Can you tell us a bit about your family and its connection to South Bend, Indiana?
1: Yeah, so the the old family story is that we're descended from Peter Studebaker, the fourth of the five Studebaker brothers, who got together to found the Studebaker Wagon Company in northern Indiana. And that got started in South Bend in the 19th century, making wagons before cars were even a thing. And as the market began to shift and cars became more popular, the company gradually switched over from wagons to cars. And we employed very, very large numbers of people in South Bend at the Studebaker plant, and there were a series of railroads that ran through South Bend to supply the factory there. We had estimates vary, but somewhere between 20,000 and 45,000 people employed at the Studebaker company at any one given time. And over the lifespan of the Studebaker company, the population of South Bend increased from under 10,000 to more than 130,000, with Studebaker employing a, a large percentage of the people who worked in the city. And over time, the company started to do less well. Ford, GM, and Chrysler were a lot bigger than Studebaker. And Studebaker had a habit of negotiating very favorable labor terms with the Studebaker employees, so much so that Studebaker almost never had labor strikes until the company was very nearly dead. And a consequence of this is that the labor costs at the Studebaker plant were just too high.
0: It seems like that the three automotive companies kind of locked down pricing among suppliers, and they had other anti-monopolistic practices. What could have been done by the government in order to help Studebaker be more competitive in that market?
1: I think the, the main issue with, with them is that they were just they were very large, and therefore they could produce cars more cheaply than Studebaker could because their production capacity was a lot higher than Studebaker's. If you look at the number of cars that Studebaker was producing, it was a couple hundred thousand, but it wasn't in the, in the millions like Ford or GM. And for a long time, Studebaker tried to compete in the low price line. Studebaker was trying to sell cars that ordinary people could buy, And it became hard to price those competitively as we started to move into the 50s and and toward the end of the 50s. Studebaker was having a really hard time pricing large numbers of cars at a competitive level.
0: Okay, so do you think there were some kind of anti-monopolistic practices the government could have installed to protect Studebaker?
1: Well, the problem with the antitrust law in the United States is that it requires one particular firm be regarded as kind of the monopoly firm, and it's that one leading firm's market share that leads the government to take a role in antitrust legislation. But when you've got an oligopoly with three different firms, none of which has a market share, which from the point of view of the federal government would justify trust busting, but which together have that market share, and are not openly colluding in a provable way, then it it becomes much harder to use the legal system. And I think that we would have had to have a much more aggressive kind of competition protection law than we had at the time to protect Studebaker because it wasn't just GM or just Ford or just Chrysler. It was all three of them together.
0: And the government couldn't prove a cartel.
1: Yeah, there was no evidence of collusion among the three.
0: Okay. And I read your article about what Pete Buttigieg says, and he seems to throw a major shade at your family. So it shut down in 1963. What happened to the people who lost their jobs?
1: Well, the, the people who lost their jobs were left in rough shape without much that they could do. It was really a tragic situation in which the company did not have the funds to continue, could not go on. The plant was retained in Canada for three more years until 1966. And that was because that plant was more profitable than the South Bend plant. That was a, a desperate bid to keep the company going. It didn't work. We were able to stick around in Canada for another three years. But at that point, it was totally toast and, and we folded up. So there was no money left really um, to, to pay anybody.
0: What was like the excuse or like, what did the government... Like say then, like that this was just capitalism and competition just pushed you guys out. Like what 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 did they say?
1: The government really just didn't do anything to help us out. They just kinda let it happen. It's kind of like when you think back to the automobile bailout that the Obama administration carried out immediately after the two thousand eight crash. So in two thousand nine when GM and, and Chrysler got into trouble, Barack Obama decided that those jobs were too important to allow those companies to go under, and he made a point to intervene to bail out those auto firms so that they could go on. But when Studebaker got into trouble, it was decided that those jobs were not important enough for any kind of action like that to take place. Indeed, I'm not even sure there was a decision. I'm not even sure it was discussed. So there was no money to bail out Studebaker or to help people who had lost jobs and had Pensions that they stood to lose, and so a lot of people not only lost their jobs but also lost their pensions. It was really tragic, and and it hit the area very hard.
0: Wow! Like, how did they lose? It. Was, I'm sorry, I don't mean to compare you guys, but was it kind of because the pension was invested with the company that they lost their pensions, or what? What was the mechanism?
1: Yeah, there there just wasn't any decision by the government to replace the pensions or to insure the pensions or to back them up. So these pensions were handled through the company. And when the company is gone, then the company can't meet its obligations to the pensioners because it no longer exists.
0: Okay, so there was no wall of separation that protected the pensions. Is there a legal framework to protect the pensions? I mean, since like it, it has happened a few other times after this now in America?
1: I don't believe so. Usually, what happens is that if a firm is in trouble, it will renegotiate its pension commitments, and it will use the fact that the pensions could go under to intimidate the unions into making concessions. It'll say, "If you don't make these concessions, we might have to close, we might have to cut jobs, and you may not get anything. So you have to accept these revisions to, to your pensions to prevent that from happening." Uh, that goes on routinely in the states. Pensions are used as a bludgeon to force unions and workers to accept terms they otherwise might not accept.
0: What if the US did pensions not unlike Greece where it came from the state and so like the company would just make pension payments each month to the state and then the state would take care of that. Like would that solve the problem?
1: That that would have helped those those particular people out. Yeah. The the problem in the in the states is we've talked about we talk about this sometimes in terms of social security expansion. So Social Security in the States does provide workers with a small amount of pension income from the state, but it's only about $12,000 a year. It's a relatively small amount of money, especially by American standards. So if you don't have additional income coming in from either a private sector pension or a public sector pension, then if you're just left on Social Security, you're almost certainly going to be living in poverty. So occasionally you hear Left-wing candidates talk about Social Security expansion, increasing the amount that it pays out to try to fill in that gap a little bit and make it easier for people to comfortably retire. But that so far is something that hasn't really been taken up in mainstream American political life. And instead, what tends to happen is that Republicans and sometimes some Democrats talk about cutting Social Security and shrinking that amount of money rather than expanding it.
0: Are you familiar with whether or not Social Security has kept pace with inflation over the past, since like the 1960s?
1: Yeah, Social Security has changed to inflation. But of course, the specific measure that you use to measure inflation will determine how credible you think that chaining is. One of the proposals during the Obama years was to change the particular measure of inflation that's used so that it would increase at a lower rate. And then they could claim it was still keeping pace with inflation. But in using a different inflation metric, uh, shrink the amount that they actually pay out. So the specific inflation metric that we use matters a lot. But yes, at least in some nominal sense, it keeps up with inflation.
0: And what are the inflation metrics for people who are not very familiar with it?
1: Yeah, so often what is, is used is the consumer price index. And so that takes a basket of goods that you might buy in, say, the supermarket, together with something like the cost of housing, and it looks to see how much that basket of goods costs over time, and so whatever percentage increase in the basket of goods, then that translates into the inflation rate.
0: Okay, um, so now getting back to South Bend, so it used to be that Studebaker was the major industry, and now they're trying to make, I guess, Notre Dame the major industry. So how, like, what is the qualitative character you've
1: Yeah. So Notre Dame doesn't employ nearly as many people as Studebaker did. I think Notre Dame's employee count is something like six or 7,000. And those Notre Dame jobs, a small number of them are academic jobs that pay quite well, but a lot of them are food service jobs, they're cleaning jobs, janitorial jobs, things like that. These jobs don't pay nearly as well. And It's true that there have been other jobs that have been created, providing services to Notre Dame students through private businesses in the city, like privately run coffee shops, privately run bars. But again, these places tend to create a lot of food and beverage jobs that often don't have pensions, that are not unionized, that don't pay very well. The food and beverage sector in South Bend, the median income for someone in that sector is about $13,000 which is incredibly low, given that in the United States, median household income is now around 50,000. So there's a small number of high-quality jobs that come in through Notre Dame and through some of the more high-end tech sectors that are attracted to South Bend because Notre Dame is there. But it's a relatively small number of high-quality jobs, nothing comparable to what Studebaker used to bring to the city, and a large number of low-wage, non-union no pension service jobs.
0: Okay, so it's kind of like a gigify job. And so what happened in, in a city that depends on property taxes, like it seems to create a spiral down. Can you explain how South Bend spiraled down from the 60s?
1: Yeah, so Indiana has a very hard time as land values decrease. The amount of property tax revenue that you can raise from a, a town falls quite precipitously. And reductions in the property tax revenue that you're receiving per citizen per square mile and also reductions that you're receiving in terms of the income tax revenue per citizen per square mile are falling. And so that means you have to spend more money per square mile than you're receiving from your your taxpayers. And so this means that it's harder and harder as the citizens become poorer to supply high quality public services to all of them. And so there's been a gradual rundown in the quality of the public services of South Bend. And South Bend has become more and more reliant on public-private sector partnerships where they induced various private actors to put up money for things. And if South Bend can't find a wealthy private actor who wants to do the project, then South Bend really struggles to do very much of anything because the amount of revenue it's taking in is so low. I think the median household income for South Bend is around 35,000 compared to 50,000 or more nationwide. And that means that the amount of tax revenue that you're receiving per person in South Bend is, is really, really low. And that makes it really hard to develop attractive public services that might induce people to move to the town. So instead, the government starts trying to get big businesses to come by giving them things and offering to support whatever projects big businesses want to do. And then if those businesses don't stick around or don't create very many jobs or import workers rather than hiring the people who live in the city, there's not much that the government can do about that. And that's what routinely happens because, of course, the low income residents who live in the city don't have a lot of the skills that these firms want. So when the firms do come, they don't hire people who are in the city. They import workers from other places. And oftentimes they don't come or they don't stick around. Uh, Buttigieg, he said he wanted to turn South Bend into a silicon prairie dominated by the computer industry. But that sector still only provides about 1.5 percent of South Bend's jobs, an amount which is lower than the average for cities in the United States. So it's still below average city for that sector. And the percentage of jobs provided by the sector is very, very small. And so he's not able to achieve the rise in living standards for the ordinary poor and working person in South Bend through this strategy. What he is able to do is get businesses to pretty up uh, their storefronts. Uh, He can get rid of houses that don't look good. He can make the city look better but that doesn't necessarily create jobs or raise standards of living for the people who live in the city. The schools still get F's from the state of Indiana. The crime rate is still triple the national average. All of the underlying indicators look bad, but the city has, has been beautified while he's been mayor, and so it has a an initial appearance of having been revived while the rot underneath continues.
0: Okay. I guess I'm getting to the larger philosophical question that I've seen many cities where the big industry collapses and then like it just goes on a spiral where people flee, then the house value plummets and then they lose their tax base and then the services like go to crap. So what could have been done between like, say, 1963 and I don't know, 2000 that would have prevented that or that could have slowed it down?
1: Well, I think that the city itself did not have an adequate amount of investment within itself to spur its own growth. It needed help from the state government. It needed help from the federal government. It could have used that help to preserve Studebaker or to bring in something else that might replace it. But since it didn't get that kind of investment from the state or from the feds, it had to come up with something else to do. And that puts a mayor in a difficult situation. And A lot of cities have found a really hard time dealing with this. Capitalism has put a lot of our cities in a kind of competition with each other for investment from rich people. And this forces the cities to compete with each other for a small amount of high quality jobs and rich people money. And it's very hard for individual mayors to come up with a development plan that is going to be more effective than sucking up to these rich people in a bid to get them to invest in the city because they don't have enough revenue because of the collapse in the public services to pursue a different strategy. So I think a lot of mayors are kind of boxed in on that. Now, there are some things that mayors can do that make things less miserable for the people who still live in the city in terms of municipal minimum wage, in terms of housing trusts.
0: What are housing trusts? Terms of,
1: uh, so housing trust is a form of public housing in which The city or community buys a piece of land and the land permanently belongs to the city and the houses that are built on the land permanently belong to the city. So instead of buying the house, you lease the house from the city. And then when you move away, the house is returned to the city and then the city can find someone else who's in need to lease it to instead of the house just going to whoever will pay the most money for it. And so it protects against rises in land values.
0: Ah, OK. Is it possible for like a capitalistic government because like a city can't coin its own money? So like without a bailout from like the federal government, is it possible for a city to recover like that?
1: I think it's very difficult. I think that you can manage the decline and you can do some things to make it less painful when you're mayor. But it, it is not something I think that a mayor can resolve independently. I think mayors need support from the state and from the federal level. And in the United States, states and federal governments used to provide a lot more of that support, but they're now being caught up in the same incentive mechanics. The state of Indiana now wants to be attractive to business and investment. So that doesn't go to Illinois or Iowa or Wisconsin or Michigan or Kentucky. The state of Indiana is now also running down its taxes, running down its labor laws, and trying to compete for business investment with neighboring states. And the federal government isn't setting benchmark minimums across states that are strong and force states to pay workers a reasonable wage, to take care of workers. The minimum wage at the federal level is still $7.25 and hasn't moved in a very long time. And it's now significantly lower when you adjust for inflation than it was in the 1960s and even lower if you adjust for both inflation and increases in productivity. So because the feds have not been keeping pace with their regulations, the states have gotten into a competitive race to the bottom. That means the states don't have the money left over to help out the municipalities. They can't invest in their municipalities. And then the municipalities are cut adrift with no source of public investment And since you can't get any public investment, the only kind of investment you can get is private investment from wealthy actors who are going to demand that you service their needs like uh, they're your customer. And it turns the municipality into a a business and, and the private investors become customers of the city.
0: Okay. So what I don't understand is Indiana is a state. Why doesn't it, like, why does it have to attract businesses? Like, why can't it say, we're going to create a bureau of transportation and we're going to hire you workers directly?
1: So the problem at the state level is that because we have open borders among the states in the United States, capital and labor can move freely. So if you attempt to impose rules in a state, for how much people can make in different sectors. Very often, if that sector's tradable, they'll just move.
0: Oh no, I'm saying like, why did they have to attract private companies instead of just like making more public sector jobs? Because you can do that through legislation.
1: Yeah, because very often what will happen is if they are not providing a competitive position to somebody who's necessary, that somebody will move. So for instance, one of the problems with state single payer is that at the state level, if you try to prevent doctors from being paid ever increasingly high wages and incomes like they're paid throughout the United States, then you get a doctor shortage where doctors leave the state and go somewhere else.
0: Oh, so it it's, so it basically it can only happen if all the states band together and create similar programs.
1: Right. And so if the federal government isn't going to impose something like that across the entire block, it's often very hard to get it started in one state. Now, there are some things I think individual states could do. Like, for instance, I think it would be very possible for Indiana to have a minimum wage that's quite high for restaurant workers in particular, because restaurants can't just relocate to another state. They have a customer base that is geographically fixed. So there are some of these industries that are less tradable and less mobile, and I think it would be possible to have states either regulating those much more intensively or even getting involved in creating public options or public services in those areas. The problem is that to support those public options and public services, they would need to raise taxes. And once they raise taxes, then their citizens are going to start leaving and going to neighboring states that will tax them less. And particularly their their rich citizens and their big businesses hey this is hamish mckenzie i'm one of the founders of substack which is the platform that hosts the historically podcast and newsletter and historically is funded purely through subscriptions so people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters and that will keep historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com.
0: So now let's get to Pete Buttigieg getting elected as mayor. By the way, I read his book. It's so creepy. (laughs) That's another point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The smart sewers really got me. But um, so for those who don't know, smart sewers are some sort of like sensor you put in the sewer to figure out how well it moves around to where it's supposed to move. So he had this idea of, I guess, the city was plagued by blight, right?
1: Yeah, he thinks the city is plagued by blight. And blight is a a word that people use that, that really just means poor people. <laughs> it means poor people. It means homeless camps. It means Buildings that are not very well maintained because the owners are poor and can't afford to maintain them. It's the f- visible symptoms, the visible symptoms of poverty. And so, what he went after in his time as mayor are the visible symptoms of poverty. He didn't get rid of poverty, but he got rid of its visible symptoms.
0: Okay, um, so he had this like commission that would like start finding residents for code violations, right?
1: Yeah, he started using code violations to force people to improve homes that he considered ugly. And if they couldn't afford to repair the homes, he would fine them. And if they wouldn't respond to those fines, he would confiscate the home and bulldoze it. Now, he received some complaints about this, and he did make some amount of money available to people to help them do repairs. But the entire purpose of the program from start to finish is to get rid of ugly homes. It's not to help the people who live in those homes. And it's this priority problem that afflicts a lot of our cities. They're interested in making it look good so that when they lead the big business people on tours of the city, they go, oh, this looks like a nice city. This looks like a nice place to put something this looks like a nice place to to live. My employees will be happy living here when I move them from wherever it is that they now live. It's it's about making the city look good to make it easier to advertise. It's not about helping the low-income residents who live in these homes.
0: So I was looking at an uh, aerial map of South Bend, and I was shocked. Like, some areas look like they've been bombed.
1: Yeah, there are huge gaping holes in the neighborhoods where the houses have been bulldozed.
0: So have they been sold to anyone else or like what happens to that plot?
1: Those places become available to developers, potentially, if the city can find someone interested in developing them. But until the city finds someone interested in developing them, they just sit vacant.
0: Okay. so what is your theory on why he did it?
1: I think he did it to try to make the city look better. I think for him, eliminating visible signs of poverty is the principal objective. And if he can eliminate the visible signs of poverty, then he can give an impression to people that the city is thriving. He can give that impression both to the city's higher income residents who will go, hey, when I go into town, it looks a lot better than it used to. Things must be getting better. And he's also giving that impression to potential investors who come to the city and they look at it and they go, oh, this place isn't a bad place to potentially build something. That's what he's trying to do. Now, he hasn't been successful at attracting a whole lot of outside jobs. The incomes in the city are not rising particularly quickly. The change in unemployment that he often touts is a change that also went on nationally at the same time that it was going on in South Bend. So I don't think he's been very successful in attracting a whole lot of business investment to the city. What he has done is he has created, through the destruction of these homes and the construction of fat sidewalks and roundabouts, a perception among the city's residents that he's a doer, that he's doing things. And for this reason, many of them immediately will jump to his defense. And he's got people from South Bend who will, if you talk bad about Pete on Twitter or on Reddit, they will find you and they will tell you all about it. But they're mainly comfortable people who are in the same kinds of jobs they were previously in before he showed up, but they always made enough money to not find it too unpleasant to live in the city. And what they're most happy about is that when they go into town, it looks better than it used to look. You can get votes this way. Yeah.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the creepier passages of his book just because it's really creepy out? Yeah,
1: for sure. Uh It's a strange book. I know. Very strange.
0: Don't read it if you guys have. Uh, Yeah, I suggest not. It's like not worth it for your mind.
1: <laughs> yes, it's it's shortest way home, one mayor's challenge, and a model for America's future.
0: Okay. So he said he launched a strong effort to make our city's management more rigorous, efficient, and fact-driven. What does that mean?
1: Well, I think it means that he applies the logic that McKinsey applies when it comes to a company, the city, which means he looks for things that are inefficient, things that aren't generating revenue, things that are expensive. And he tries to get rid of those things. And poor people don't generate a lot of revenue, and they're expensive, so he tries to get rid of them.
0: So, the fact-driven mayorship leads to some Orwellian things, like he started a 311 call system and then he started tracking who's calling?
1: Yeah, he just created a phone number that you can call to talk to the city. Uh, he's very proud of that, like it, it, like it's such a big accomplishment. When he lists his accomplishments as mayor, he tends to list that in his top five.
0: Yeah, but it's creepy because it's now collecting data on everyone in the city, and I don't know if the government should be collecting all that data.
1: Right. So it's a phone number. Uh, and what kind of big deal is it from the point of view of the citizen and in the meantime, it may be collecting all kinds of data. Who knows?
0: Okay. The worst thing, um, let's go to, loca- I'm going to location 193, and I will read this. Previous administrations had torn down hundreds, but they never seemed to get ahead of the contagion of blight.
1: Yeah. It's it's as if poor poverty is a disease, and the way that he aims to cure poverty is by ripping down houses. It's
0: Yeah. And oh, can we also talk about the police scandal? I'm not exactly familiar with everything that happened there.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not quite as well read up on that as I am on some of the other things he's done, but from what I understand there was a police chief, a black police chief that he fired, and he claims that the police chief was under a corruption investigation. But it's it's relatively unusual for South Bend, I think, to have black police chiefs. So People wonder what was up with that.
0: Is there anything else like I haven't mentioned that you think people should know about Pete or South Bend?
1: Well, I think they should know about the homeless. Yeah, that was really brutal. So when it came to the homeless, the mayor commissioned a report in August of 2017 to deal with the homelessness problem. The report came out in August and it it recommended uh, he commissioned it earlier that year. Excuse me. Earlier in 2017, it came out in August. And it recommended the building of a gateway center, a kind of state-of-the-art center for the homeless where they could come and stay. And they would also get access to services, access to housing, stuff that would help them to stabilize their lives, not just a bed for the day, but also a kind of plan that would help them to stop being homeless. And it was recommended that that be constructed. Well, going into the fall of 2017, Buttigieg said he was going to do this, had money in the budget for it. There was a site, Ivy Tech was going to donate some space, a kind of local community college was going to donate some unused space. It hasn't been built. And at this point, there's no location for it because the space that they were originally looking at, some of the neighbors who lived nearby didn't didn't want it built there. And so the mayor just didn't move on it and it hasn't been built. And there have been protests On behalf of the homeless, and a petition which 700 people have signed, which would be equivalent to 2.3 million at the national level in the United States, based on population, to have something done about the homelessness problem. There are people living in camps under under a bridge, and so far, instead of building the center, what Buttigieg has done is that he has been looking for ways to use nuisance laws to break up the camps, and make it harder for people to camp out in the city. And this culminated in the use of the city's right to clean the streets to repeatedly and clean the streets under this bridge where the homeless like to be, often enough that it is inconvenient for them to be there. And he was asked if he was using the street cleaning to try to get rid of the homeless, and his response was something along the lines of, People have rights and we can't just get rid of them, but also the city has rights. And our, you know, our policy is that no one should be camping out in the city at night. Everybody should be in a warm bed. We have limited enforcement mechanisms available to us for that policy.
0: How about not destroying homes?
1: <laughs> well, And so the denial, the denial includes almost an admission because he's, he says when he's asked, are you doing this to get the homeless off the street? He says in his answer that the policy of the city is to have the homeless off the street. And so this is something I find really disturbing because there are the people who were involved in writing that report are now very frustrated because they feel the report hasn't been implemented. The homelessness problem continues to be an issue. There was a protest in South Bend as recently as this past December over it, and nothing is being done. And in the meantime, Buttigieg goes around to conferences, goes around to events, and one of the things he talks about at events very often is the new ideas on homelessness that the city is implementing.
0: And what does he claim? Because he commissioned
1: this report, and he's got the report's results. And people are giving him credit for being an innovator in this area where he has done nothing except commission a report and then not act on it.
0: It's not complicated with homelessness. You just give people apartments to live in.
1: <laughs> yeah, it said he's destroying the housing stock of the city. So
0: Okay. Um anything else that we haven't covered?
1: Yeah, people should be aware if they're not aware that he worked at McKinsey, the consulting firm. Oh
0: can, yeah, can you talk more about McKinsey and what it is and what it does?
1: Yeah. So McKinsey is a consulting firm. And if you work for McKinsey, then you go to firms and you help them find ways to be more efficient. And that often involves finding people they can fire, finding employees that are not efficient that they can get rid of. And around the elite universities, because I've been at Cambridge, I've been at Chicago, I've been at a number of these places, and Buttigieg himself was at Harvard. If you go work for McKinsey or for a consulting firm, That's considered one of the most slimy things you can do when you graduate from one of these elite universities. The people who aspire to work for these consulting firms are considered by the rest of us to be uh, ruthless, cold, unkind, money-grubbing people. And so when I heard that he was someone who went to an elite school who then decided when he graduated that the best thing he could do with his life is work for McKinsey, that did not sit well with me. He also, people should know, was in the military. And he got himself deployed while he was in office for a year. And during that year, someone else was mayor of the city while he was off playing G.I. Joe.
0: Yeah, I still don't know like what he was like, why he needed to be there. But it sounds like to me, his foreign policy is it's like very adherent to like the neocon consensus of the world. Um, You know, Iran dangerous. We need to have a chessboard. Like it doesn't actually reflect the real danger in the world, which to me is like American military. Uh,
1: Buttigieg reflects consensuses everywhere. So he, the consensus in how to build a strong town or a strong city is that you attract private investment and you do whatever's necessary to attract that investment. And Buttigieg embodies that consensus. And the consensus in foreign policy is that we've got to go get involved in places to stop terrorism. And when that was the consensus in foreign policy, Buttigieg was, was right for it. And I like to say about Buttigieg that he is establishment to his bones, that he's a zealous foot soldier in just about every establishment cause. And if something is in vogue, that's what he will identify with. I don't think he's ever had an original thought in his life. I've never seen him propose anything that is genuinely new. And I've never seen him do anything that was really innovative until it's cool with the establishment people. He won't even think about it. And the way, for instance, that he responded to Bernie Sanders' suggestion that prisoners are citizens of our country and have a right to vote is evocative. He, he said, I, I don't see why we should make an exception to all the other rights we, we take away from prisoners when they're in prison. Why is voting any different? And that, that was his attitude the attitude being that the default is to take rights away rather than to hand them out. And I remember him saying of Chelsea Manning that he was troubled that Chelsea Manning was, was uh, not being uh, punished more. That was troubling to him. Yeah. He tweeted about this. If you look it up on Twitter. Yeah. He's troubled by the lack of, of severity of punishment with respect to Chelsea Manning. And and this to me just reflects that somebody who is always going to take the positions that will tend to get him advanced by the establishment because he, he this is the kind of guy who goes to Harvard because it's a high-status place, who goes to work at McKinsey because that's considered a high-status job, who joins the Army because that will make himself more marketable politically. Everything he has done has been about making himself more marketable to the establishment, and nothing he's done has been about helping anybody.
0: Yeah, um, for, like one thing that I do want, To explain to people that's like it's basic logic, is that if the government gets to decide who's a felon and who's not, and then also decides to get you don't vote if you're a felon, what's their incentive to not just like lock up all the dissidents? Like mind-blowingly stupid. Sorry, that whole conversation.
1: Uh, There's more than two million people who are currently incarcerated in the country, and that could be a significant number of votes depending on what kind of race you're running. And of course, we know that ex-cons are more likely to vote for Democrats and for more left-wing candidates. So the policy favors the right.
0: Exactly. Thank you so much. It was you reading your article, like I'll put a link to it. And thank you for talking. Like you were incredibly informative. Like I, I learned so much about the political landscape that I wouldn't have known. And so I hope you do come back again some other time.
1: Oh, it was lots of fun. And thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. How do people find you on social media?
1: Yeah, so I've got a blog, benjaminstudebaker.com. I've got a Twitter account, bmstudebaker. I've got a podcast called What's Left that I'm doing with Amy Therese, which is loads of fun. Okay. So yeah, lots of places you can find me.
0: Awesome, well, have a great day.
1: Thanks, you too.
0: Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify, W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.